Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Sheriff David Shore fought back against the state investigators looking into the Michelle O'Connell case and won. So we got a bad cop, okay, that shouldn't be a cop, and it ain't Jeremy Banks. I don't like dirty cops. I don't like cops that make shit up. I don't like cops that coach witnesses. I don't like cops that manufacture evidence. I don't like cops that lie repeatedly in depositions. I have a problem with that. He's a bad cop, and I know this is being taped, and I don't give a shit. Years after the state of Florida closed the case, a private citizen named Eli Washtock is now a victim of a brutal murder. So can, you can't say if it was, if you believe it was suicide or a homicide, you're not sure on either side yet. At this point, it's still too early in the investigation. But it seems suspicious? Yes. If there's no threat to the community, but there's not a suspect caught, the, there's a little bit of confusion between those, those two facts. Again, because of the nature of the investigation, I cannot divulge why we believe that, but we are confident that there is no threat to the community. What if we could figure out who was in and around Eli Washtock's condo building during the time frame when he was murdered? How could we do that? You mean like the visitor log at the guard station or a surveillance camera? Those would be very helpful, but we can't get them. Putnam County's investigation has everything sealed. I would like to think the detectives have those items, but we can't be certain. But what if there was a way for us to find out who was near or around Eli's condo without those items? What if we could track the cell phones in the area? So what are you proposing? There are some technologies out there that can identify cell phones in a given area. Maybe we can figure out who was in or near the crime scene during the late evening of January 30th and into the early morning hours of January 31st, 2019. Oh yeah, I've heard of this technology. Basically, you draw a circle around a specific area at a specific time, and it generates an anonymous ID associated with each cell phone. That's pretty interesting. How do you think we could use this information? From my research, I think we might be able to track where those cell phones came from prior to the murder and where they went. This could be huge. It could really net something meaningful, but it would only be a subset of all the possible people in and around Eli's condo because it's only picking up cell phones, not actual people, and it may not pick up every cell phone in the area. If a cell phone pings anywhere near Eli's condo and then that same anonymous ID pings at St. John's County Sheriff's Office or an officer's house, it could be pretty damning. There are a ton of caveats, but it sure will be interesting to see what we find. So if we could get this to work, will this technology allow us to actually identify the individual? It will require additional investigation to zero in on how it is tied to a specific cell phone, but it's possible. This information alone won't be able to identify the killer, but this information could provide a lead. If we get a match, that would be huge. From 
the creators of Twisted and the Pretend Podcast, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative true crime podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. It's 2014. This is after the conclusion of the FDLE investigation and two years after the special attorney Brad King told the O'Connell family that the case would not be prosecuted. This is also four years before Eli Washtock gets involved with the case. Never before heard testimony emerged describing a conversation Jeremy Banks allegedly had shortly after Michelle's death. Here's Daniel Harmon talking with investigators in a sworn statement. The night that we're discussing, what was it? What was his words? What did he say? I asked him if he was all right, and he was just like, "Fuck that bitch. She deserved what she got. I'm moving on with my life." And I just remember that just uh, blowing me away. You know. The new evidence was in the form of a witness by the name of Daniel Harmon, who was a bartender and owner of the bar Ring of Fire. According to Daniel Harmon, on the night after Michelle's death, Jeremy Banks allegedly stated to him. The bitch got what she deserved. Others were allegedly present or nearby when the statement was made. The two other guys were Morgan Robinson, another bartender at the Ring of Fire, and Jeremy's friend, John Mallow. On September 30 of 2014, Florida Governor Rick Scott assigned State Attorney Jeff Aston to review and follow up on possible new evidence in the death of Michelle O'Connell. Investigators working for the state attorney, Jeff Aston, interviewed the individuals who were present at the Ring of Fire bar on the night of the alleged comments. Here is a portion of Daniel Harmon's interview with investigators. Tell me about that night. I remember it being a slow night. I remember John Mallow and, and Jeremy Banks walking in, and um, John Mallow um, gave me a gesture. So I walked to the end of the bar, and he goes, Last night... Jeremy's girlfriend shot herself and killed herself. And I remember saying, last night? And he's like, uh, yes, last night. And I'm just giving you a heads up to why he might be in a certain mood or uh, be acting a certain way. According to Daniel's interview, he indicated that Jeremy frequented the bar a couple of times a month prior to Michelle's death. And how many times prior to that? Jeremy, um, a good handful of times, you know. And he would... Uh, get you know there was a switch when he when he drank and he would uh become offensive to people and i had to ask him to leave on a couple occasions to say hey man you had too much to drink man just come back some other time you know did you ever have to call law enforcement or anything like that no according to daniel Harmon, jeremy came to the bar more regularly after michelle's death the investigator asked daniel Harmon about the conversation he overheard that night the night that we're discussing what was it? What was his words? What did he say? Um, things that stand out to me because a lot was said, but things that stand out to me. I asked him if he was all right, and he was just like, "Fuck that bitch. She deserves what she got. I'm moving on with my life." And I just remember that just uh, blowing me away. And it had been 20 hours since it happened, and he's calling her a bitch. Was it normal to me? Um, he said. Um, all she ever did was put me down. That relationship wasn't good. The investigators asked Daniel Harmon for clarification on Jeremy Banks' statement to him. He didn't confess to me that he did it. He didn't say I did it. 
because she deserved it. He didn't say those words. If he would have said, you know, something to that nature, I definitely would have went to the authorities the next day. But, you know, I wasn't going to run to the authorities based on behaviors that I didn't agree with. It just didn't seem like they were facts. It was more, uh, it, it wasn't right, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't a confession, basically. Another person who was at the Ring of Fire that evening was Jeremy Banks's friend, John Mallow. So tell me about this night at the bar. What, what, what happened there? I know he was having a really hard time with everything that was going on with Michelle. And again, being if that was before we, they buried her or this was after they buried her, they were really having a big thing about that he shot her mm-hmm. and that the family and one of her brothers was going to come after him. Like, there was a really big thing about that. John continued telling the investigator about the night he and Jeremy went to Ring of Fire, shortly after Michelle's death. And he was, like, upset about it, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, man, well, I, I want to say I talked to him on the phone. I said, why don't you just get out of the house? Let's just go have a drink or something. Let's go, we'll go to Ring of Fire. There's nobody up there. And again, what night of the week it was, I don't know. I want to say definitely it was that week or so afterwards. Could have been two weeks. But like I said, more than a week, less than a, no, less than a month, I would say, give or take. So, you know, we went up there and chilled. First thing I did is when we walked in there, um, we sat down, we were going to grab a beer, and I kind of said, hey, Dan, let me talk to you for a second. I was like, you know, listen, man, everything that he's going through, I don't know if you know what happened, but, you know, everything that he's going through right now, you know, he's just he just needs to get a break. And if he gets a little wild, a little yelling and screaming or anything like that, just, I got him. I'll take care of it. Obviously, I do security, so I'm, I'll take care of him if he gets stupid. Just let me know, give me the wink, and I'll get him out of here kind of thing. According to John Mallow, he saw Jeremy about two times a month at the Ring of Fire prior to Michelle's death. Do you remember if Jeremy ever had a conversation with Danny? If they ever talked about anything? If did, did they have a talk about Michelle? Not that I know of. John Mallow didn't recall Jeremy Banks saying, fuck that bitch, she deserves what she got. He just doesn't remember the conversation Daniel Harmon said he overheard that night. Is it possible that Danny was in a position to overhear some of that conversation? You know, sometimes I want to say yes, sometimes I want to say no. It all depends on the situation. You're in a bar. They're playing music. John talked about hearing the rumors about what Jeremy said that night. Did it, was any of that true? Not that I know of. So we, at the times that you spent with Jeremy, he's never spoke those words? Not to me. Okay. And not to anybody else that you were sitting there and could hear? Not, never heard those words out of my mouth. Okay. Out of my ears, I've never heard those words from him. John acknowledged that he told Daniel Harmon that Jeremy was dealing with some issues, which was consistent with Daniel's recollection. There was a second bartender working at the Ring of Fire that night. It was Morgan Robinson. Here's Morgan telling investigators about his recollection of the night's events. Jeremy, Jeremy Banks and John Marlowe came in around 1030-ish. I don't, that's just sort of the general hour. Jeremy used to come into the bar. He used to come in there all the time. Same with John Marlowe. He was actually one of our bouncers. They came in. I served them their first beer. Morgan talked more about Jeremy Banks' alleged statements. After that, I didn't hear what transpired between Jeremy, John, and Danny that evening. Danny pulled me aside after they left later on when we were closing down the bar. Sort of, you know, you know, his girlfriend committed suicide last night. Something's not right. He was saying that, you know, that bitch deserved what she got. According to Morgan, in the month before Michelle's death, Jeremy visited the Ring of Fire about five times a week. 
And Jeremy wasn't always the best patron. It's a couple times we've had to throw him out of the bar. You know, there's probably at least five or six times we've had to throw him out of the, dar- the bar. For prior just, to Michelle? Prior to Michelle for just being too angry and, you know, getting out of control, getting a little wild. You know, he used to think that he could wrestle like MMA in our bar, which was, you know, not cool. <laughs> and who would do the throwing out? Yeah, who, who would? Who Danny. Would- Danny, would Danny was in charge of that. If he was there, if I if it was me there, I'd tell him, you know, you got to chill out or else you can get out. You know, and, and normally by then he doesn't, he wouldn't like being called out about it. He'd piss it, like have a, you know, throw a little hissy fit and get in his car and leave. I mean, the kid, he would slam beers and then get in his car and, and take off. At the time, Jeremy and Morgan were friends, but their friendship faded. Investigators also brought Jeremy Banks in to talk about the alleged statements and what transpired on that evening. Obviously, you you know about the new testimony that's come out about you having gone to the Ring of Fire. Had you frequented the Ring of Fire prior to the incident? No, sir. Um, so, you had you ever been there? Before she passed away? Yes. No, sir. So you'd never even been there before? No, sir. This was in direct contrast to what Morgan and Daniel told investigators regarding Jeremy visiting the Ring of Fire prior to Michelle's death. Jeremy also claimed that the night being referred to by the other three witnesses was the first time he met Daniel Harmon. According to Jeremy Banks' statement to investigators, he first went to the Ring of Fire bar about three weeks after Michelle's death. From then until the summer of 2011, Jeremy acknowledged that he went to the Ring of Fire many times a week. There was a moment when I became a full-fledged alcoholic, and I was there a lot. Investigators turned to the night in question. What do you recall talking about and to who? I remember the night that I was there, the first time I was there, um, I talked about it. I spoke with Danny and John. I told them about the incident. I remember I got... I mean, I got worked up and upset about it to the point where me and John left, went for a motorcycle ride. I, I for some, I can remember that motorcycle ride. We left, we went over the bridge of lines, we went back over the Volano Bridge, we turned around, and we came back to the Ring of Fire, and it was pretty much just to get my mind off things. I mean, yeah, I talked about it. To remember every word I said, I mean, it's... No, Have please. you read the reports of what was said, of what you, what you were supposedly said that night? Yes, sir. Okay. Is there any truth to any of that? Absolutely not. Here's Jeremy further explaining what he said that night. But can you recall the gist of what you do- talked about? I, I remember talking about, about being sad about it. I remember talking about our relationship being terrible. I remember talking about um, yeah, the, what else could I do but move on, move forward. Two of them placed it on September 3rd, 2010. One placed it at least a week later, and Jeremy claimed it was more like three weeks later. Yet all four of them conveyed and described essentially the same progression of events during the night in question. Jeremy then told investigators what he thought was driving the recent allegations. I have a conversation with somebody, and he takes it for 15 minutes of fame to, 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 to misconstrue it, to, to, to make it sound like I, I'm this huge monster. I can't tell you verbatim what I said, but I know for a fact I didn't say that she got what she deserved. As an afterthought, and just to cover their bases, the investigators asked Jeremy the seemingly unimportant question. One more question, mm-hmm. and we were remiss if we didn't ask you. Did you shoot Michelle that night? No, sir. 
In 2015, State Attorney Jeffrey Ashton released a statement indicating that their findings were, quote, did not meet the standards established for prosecution. One of the investigators working for the state attorney wrote a 70-page recap of the case. He stated that the confusion over the dates of when the incident took place weakened the believability associated with both Daniel Harmon and Morgan Robinson's statements. According to his analysis, Michelle O'Connell's death was more consistent with suicide than homicide. The interview ended with this exchange. Do you have any questions? I'm trying to rattle my brain right now, see if I can, because I don't, every time time that question's asked, I always say, no, 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 and then now, I'm... Take it down, we're here for you. (sighs) Nothing more came out of this investigation. At this point, no one official was looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell. Michelle's older brother, Scott O'Connell, still baffles me. His role in this tragedy has been anything but consistent. Scott lost his temper when he found out about his sister's death, and then he lost his temper again when he learned that Jeremy would not be criminally indicted. The second outburst cost him his job at the St. Johns County Sheriff's Office. When Sheriff Shore realized how FDLE agent Rusty Rogers treated Scott O'Connell, at least according to Scott's account, he felt he needed to right a wrong. Here's Sheriff Shore speaking at a St. Johns County Sheriff's staff meeting. Sheriff, you fired the guy because he threatened the prosecutor, and now you're going to think about hiring him back? I could sit up here and give you 12 reasons why I shouldn't, but I got one, I can give you one reason why I should, and that's because it's right. Scott's going to come back to work as a member of this agency. He's going to come back in a civilian capacity at the same rate of pay he had when he left. Give him about a year, year and a half, see how things work out. Things work out well, we'll swear him in and put a star and a gun on his side again. That's what we're going to do. Scott O'Connell appeared to have turned the corner and his life was back on track. Then, in July 2017... Good evening, I'm Heather Crawford. Thank you for joining us tonight. The St. Johns County Sheriff's Office has just confirmed to us that Deputy Scott O'Connell resigned on Monday after his arrest last month for battery. Now, O'Connell was one of two St. Johns County deputies arrested in July for allegedly putting his hands on a woman. A St. Johns County Sheriff's deputy arrested Scott for misdemeanor domestic battery. According to several news reports at the time, Scott punched the victim, his wife, in the face with a closed fist. The sheriff's office placed Scott on leave and opened an internal investigation. Within weeks, Scott O'Connell officially resigned from the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. And then the state attorney's office dismissed the charges later that same year. Okay, so now we are, we are heading over to Scott O'Connell's house. Which I would imagine like you said, is pretty hostile territory. Yeah, this isn't gonna go well. Hi, we're looking for Scott O'Connell. Yeah, we're with the we're doing a podcast on the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. Scott and his wife Beth declined our request for an interview. They were less than enthusiastic with our request to speak with them. In fact, his wife Beth looked quite terrified. They kicked us off their property. Scott currently works for the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office.
Sheriff David Shore began his career in law enforcement, working as a police officer for the St. Augustine Police Department in 1981. After 10 years as a patrol officer, he worked his way up the ranks. In the year 2000, he was appointed chief of police. Sheriff Shore also has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and a master's degree in public administration. He served in the National Guard for 24 years, and finally, in 2004, he was elected sheriff of St. John's County. Sheriff Shore spent his adult life in law enforcement, with most of it in leadership positions. But now, it's coming to an end. In the previous episode, Sheriff Shore passionately refuted claims that this was all a cover-up. It may not have been a cover-up, but it was definitely mishandled. The St. John's Sheriff's Office kind of plays a role. It's, it's almost a character in and of itself in this story. I wanted to kind of get your input on the culture. Where? At culture where? At our agency? Yes. We have a healthy culture. We Our, our, our motto is taking care of people. That's what we do. We, uh, we have high standards. We have a great reputation in this state. And uh, we hold our people accountable. Um, we, uh, we have a wonderful agency. In fact, reputation-wise, probably one of the best in Florida. You know, when I get asked, what's the one attribute you look for when you hire people? I always use the term moral courage. My whole life's been dedicated to the vulnerable and to the people left behind. That's what I've done my whole life. How important is loyalty to you? I don't ask for loyalty to me. I don't deserve loyalty to me. I mean, I, what I ask for for our folks is loyalty to the profession and loyalty to the office of sheriff. I don't, I don't ask anybody for personal loyalty because that's not what this is about. What's it like to work at St. John's Sheriff's Office? Well, you're asking the guy in charge, at least for the next 11 months, so I'd tell you it's great. Like, for instance, uh, out of the 100% of the guys that work in the Secret Service, 98% of them are great people, men and women. 2% are problems. So every organization has about 2% of issues. But we've got a great agency. Many people point to various incidents or unethical and possibly criminal actions by the St. John's County Sheriff's deputies where no one was adequately punished. Does Sheriff Shore do enough to get rid of the problem deputies or what he calls the 2% of bad apples? As far as that goes, because I've, I've heard you say that before, I think in one of your debates for sheriff, what do you attribute that bad behavior to? What behavior? The 2% behavior? Yeah. Oh, human, the human condition. And so what can you do as like kind of the head of a law enforcement agency to minimize that? To minimize what? That 2%. Well, you, 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 you do everything you can. You enforce standards, you have policies, and you do what you can. And when they don't measure up, then you take care of business. You got to do what you got to do. Are you concerned with people who disagree with you within the organization, or is it only oh, no, the no, mission? No, 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 I encourage disagreement. So one of the things that we've encountered is that people have said they won't talk to us because they're afraid of St. John's Sheriff's Office, that they'll keep sure. ret- retribution. Talk about sure. why you think that perception exists. You'd have to ask people with that nonsense. I have no idea. So you think there's there's no validity to that? Well, how could there be? We we, we do we do stuff all the time. We, we we've had people report things all the time. I've I've been sheriff for sixteen years. I've suspended, terminated, demoted. I've I've put him in jail. I mean, so for someone to say they're afraid, 
That's nonsense. You, I mean, everybody knows that's nonsense. What are we going to do? Go out and harm them? What are we going to do? Ignore them? I mean, that's that's stupid. We're not. That's insane. So if somebody says they're afraid, you have to ask them why they're afraid. Yeah, I, I people that never. I got people that never met me that think I'm the biggest criminal in the world, being investigated by the FBI, the CIA, the DIA, and everybody else. So I, what people have in their minds, I can only control what's in my mind, and sometimes I worry about that. So I don't know what if someone says they're afraid. That's just hyperbole. You know, you're going to be leaving office here, and I think you said 11 months. How do you think people will remember your time as sheriff? I've been a public servant my whole life. I've been a cop for 40 years. I'm a 24-year veteran of the United States Army, including a combat tour in a combat theater of operations. I've been all over the world helping people and, and for natural disasters and wars, and I've been a cop. And so, I don't know. I mean, I've raised, I've been married to my first wife, and I've raised two children. I just had my first grandchild. So, I hope I'm remembered well. But, you know, I'm at a point in my life, John, and you'll get there someday where, you know, you kind of go on about life, you know. I used to worry about things like what people think, but I think I got a great reputation, and, you know, I'm I'm the most flawed man you'll ever meet. But, I mean, I'm not dishonest, and I'm fair, and I'm I'm humble. You know, hey, is, if, I'm, if, if I can leave this and say, hey, he was a fair guy, that's good. Or an honest guy, that's good. I was just going to tell you that I put a lot of, I, I do a lot of analysis on uh, the way people talk and, and like the words they use. And there was never a time in listening to your statements on this case that I ever thought that you didn't believe that Jeremy Banks was in. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I would have never thought you. that you were thank covering you. anything up. Uh, well, thank you. Because that, that yeah. came across that, that, that well, you see, believe that whether, Walter, you know, whether I disagree Walter, or not, you believe here's that. The ama- here's the amazing thing. This is what's so funny. You ready? We all stereotype, don't we? Of course, right? You know, we all profile, right? We see people, we make judgments on people. Oftentimes they're premature. And in my case, oftentimes they're wrong. I'm a southern good old boy, redneck (laughs) sheriff, and we're all racist. And I'm an Irish Catholic kid from Springfield in Boston, Massachusetts, that got down here when he was 19 years old. And I'm a very educated man. And I've read more than most people. And quite frankly, I have an affinity for the humanities and the arts. So I don't fit the stereotype. As Sheriff Shore mentioned, he's leaving office, which means there will be a new sheriff in St. John's County. My name is Chris Strickland, and I am a candidate for the Office of Sheriff here in St. John's County. Chris Strickland worked at the St. John's County Sheriff's Office nearly his entire career. He's seen it from the inside. Now, this is something that I have been working my entire adult life. I've never worked, not only have I always been in law enforcement, I have always worked for this agency. The day that I got there, I see it was in 1983, and that was 21 years before Sheriff Shore became our sheriff. Talk about like why you want to want to run for sheriff, why you are running for sheriff. I knew at a very young age, just like you know, going into a military and being a, a career military man, you know what you want to do. You know, you. Uh, I was exposed to it at a young age. The sheriff asked me when I was 19 what my ultimate goal was, and I said to be the sheriff. And this is Neil Perry I'm talking about. And uh, Sheriff Perry said, "Well, I'll put you on the on the track for that." And now he's running to take David Shore's place. He wants to restore citizens' trust in the sheriff's office. But I do take pleasure in the fact that uh, that we are going to 
police our own and, and there's going to be a culture and a climate of we're not going to do the wrong thing, we're going to do the right thing even when nobody's looking. The conversation turned to the Michelle O'Connell case. Let me just say this. We have a, in, in the Strickland for Sheriff campaign, we have, uh, have a rule that we are not going to tear down, throw rocks, sling mud at, at the other candidates whatsoever. Um, but uh, we will defend our position on the way we feel about you know, whether or not things should be investigated by our agency or somebody else's agency. For instance, you know, if you have a deputy sheriff whose girlfriend is dead and the deputy sheriff's firearm is used in that death, then that is law enforcement 101 that you call in another agency to investigate that because it is a compromising situation. Um, and you want to show the, the maximum amount of transparency. You want to show the maximum amount of cooperation with the agency that investigates it. And then you need to report it to the public in the most accurate fashion that's available. What Sheriff Shore had said was that 5% uh, of the people in his department are going are gonna to commit crimes. And if he gets rid of them, 5% more will just come in and do it. In my phone interview with Sheriff Shore, he revised the number to 2%. And in that, this 5% business, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a believer of that. Okay? Yeah, if I find 5% of that agency doing that, we're going to get into that 5%. House. Yeah. Yes. I can just put it in layman terms for you. There's going to be some of the command staff that's going to be replaced. And they're going to be replaced with qualified professionals who have uh, decades upon decades of experience in this type of thing. We're going to regulate you know, who we hire, and if, and if they have you know, episodes of that type of behavior in their past, they're not going to be hired and entrusted with the public trust. Yeah. So you are running for one of the most powerful positions in local government. How, as sheriff, will you wield that power? First of all, self-discipline is paramount. Uh, if you cannot be an example to the public, to the folks that you police, you've lost your credibility right away. If new evidence were presented to you as sheriff on the Michelle O'Connell case, would you consider reopening it? If there is new evidence on any crime, we're going to look at it. We're going to give it its due, and we're going to make sure that it is investigated to the point that it either proves something or disproves something. Yes. And if there's anything that can be done on a case like that, on that case or any case like it, it will be done. Rob Hardwick, who is endorsed by Sheriff Shore, refused to speak with us. Hardwick, who is currently the chief of police for St. Augustine Beach, was an investigator for the state attorney's office, and he worked on the Michelle O'Connell case while in that role. No matter who wins, there will be a new sheriff in St. Johns County in early 2021. criminal conduct. Michelle O'Connell's body was exhumed, and what a medical examiner found was shocking. Then I watched an interview of Dr. Bullock, and he's up there pointing at the bullet, and you can see the fraction. You can see the fraction on the x-ray during the TV interview. I'm thinking, what are you guys thinking? <laughs> you know. Plus, Remember Eli's bombshell that he was keeping in his binder? Well, we finally get the results of the forensic evidence he commissioned. That's next week on Criminal Conduct.
A special thanks to our executive producer, AdvertiseCast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. Each episode, John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. A new episode of Criminal Conduct is out next week. Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened. And I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish, as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app, hit subscribe, and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer, it just means you're murder-ish.